Blog Talk Radio. Everybody was Welcome to Chaos Talk Radio. This is your host, Don Cooper. Everybody grab a cocktail and sit back and relax. It's happy hour somewhere in the world. Let's talk economics and politics. Today on the show, we are pleased to have two fantastic guests with us. Our first guest is Becky Akers. Uh, She is a LouRockwell.com columnist, a freelance writer, and a self-proclaimed hater of the state. Becky, how are you doing? I'm fine, Don. How are you? (laughs) Good, good. Thanks so much for joining us today. Sure, it's my pleasure. Uh, we're also pleased to have Stefan Kinsella. Uh, Stefan is an attorney practicing in Houston, Texas. He's uh, the editor of Libertarian Papers, a senior scholar at the Ludwig von Mises Institute in Auburn, Alabama, and uh, also a LouRockwell.com columnist. Uh, Stefan, thanks so much for joining us. Glad to be here. <clears throat> uh, it's funny, I was just last night, I was, Stefan, I was going through some of your, your papers today, actually, on the uh, Mises.com uh, website. And I was just watching a video last night. I don't know how I got turned on to it. Um, Judge Napolitano and uh, uh, P.J. O'Rourke were on the John Stossel show. Yes, I and saw that. You show. saw that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the topic was, what is a libertarian? Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I address this to both of you, of course. I, I, I've actually thought about this a lot because I'm not sure – I'm not real big, to be honest with you, personally on labels. Um, I think sometimes they could be pretty destructive. And so I've, I, I hesitate to call myself a libertarian because I don't want people boxing me in to, to say that, well, you know, Don's a libertarian, so now I know everything there is to know about Don. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought it was an interesting discussion, and uh, so I, I thought I'd uh, pose that question to you guys. Um, uh, Stefan, if, if you want to go, what, what do you see as uh, being, the, I guess, the, the guiding principles of, of a libertarian? Well, um I'll say that on the show, I was surprised at what what a good set of guests they had, um, and, uh, and some of the some of the audience members actually gave pretty good answers to that question. Um, some of their guests were not the the more uh, hardcore principle libertarians we might think of. Um, one of them uh, was in favor of the war in Iraq, for example, but the others were all pretty solid. Um, and and I don't have your issue with labels. I just think it's uh, the use of words for to describe concepts and we're conceptual thinkers, so I don't have a problem with it, although I understand some of the concerns. But I would just say that a libertarian is someone who opposes aggression on principle, and aggression defined in terms of the invasion of property rights, including the bodies of other people, and property rights envisioned in terms of um, uh, uh, rights to scarce resources assigned to the homesteading, the homesteader of those resources. So basically, I would define libertarianism in terms of principled and consistent opposition to aggression, where aggression is defined in terms of the Lockean conception of property rights. And and would you say that that applies across the board, no exceptions? You mean because uh, like like yeah, like you were saying on the show on John Stossel, um, uh, the one black gentleman I can't remember uh, his name, 
Murdoch, um, Murdoch or something like that, I believe. Right, right. He, like you said, he he actually uh, supported the war in Iraq, which which seems to me to go against, uh, the, for example, the definition that you just gave of a libertarian. Yeah, I, I I wouldn't consider him to be a consistent libertarian. I mean, I think he, he would deviate from libertarian principles in that regard. Now, that's not to say that there are not gray areas or areas of disagreement or difficult issues like the abortion issue, which came up on the show. Right. It's a difficult issue for libertarians because we're we're trying to apply the principles, and the question is whether the you know the fetus has has rights. Um, so that's more of a difficult application question. But I, I don't see how the, uh, the 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 war in Iraq is a difficult question at all for libertarians. Yeah, Becky, did you see that show by any chance, or, or the YouTube video of it? No, I'm sorry, I don't watch TV. <laughs> oh, bless your heart. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's just not not good for my psyche. So we... good for you. No, I agree. I agree. To be honest with you, the older I get, the less and less of it I watch. <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised oh. actually anybody does anymore. I'll tell you, I, since I don't watch it, I don't own one. The only time I ever see it is if I'm out, maybe staying in a hotel, and. Right. Again, because I don't watch it, possibly that's why it affects me so strongly, but I am appalled at the degeneration each time I see it. It's like it's worse than the last time I saw it. It's pornographic. It's vulgar. It's coarse. It's just – I just don't want that filth in my home. But anyway, you know, was, I, 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 it still amazes me, you know, addressing it. It just still amazes me. Who wants to watch a bunch of middle-aged women from New Jersey acting like adolescent teenage girls? I, that sort of programming – that reality stuff still just blows my mind that there exists a market for that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I also wonder about the kind of person that says, sure, come film me. Like, <laughs> really? <laughs> well, <Yeah>. okay. <laughs> yeah, so. you know, to be honest with you, the way I got to the Stossel video, I think, was through LouRockwell.com. Somebody had okay. commented about the judge being being on the show, and that directed me to a YouTube video. I mean, I, I get all of that off of YouTube, uh, mm. to be honest mm-hmm. with you. It's, as busy as, as you know things are, I just don't have time to. You know, if it stossels on at eight at night, I can't really schedule to be home and watch it eight at night. So okay. But 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 your take on on, libert- on libertarianism, Becky? Well, I may be the wrong person to ask because I'm not a libertarian. I'm an anarchist, and in fact, libertarianism doesn't make much sense to me. You've got people here who are saying, you know what, poison is really bad for you, so I want a little bit of it. Like no. Thanks. The state is really, really toxic. I don't want any part of it. I don't want it touching people I love. I don't want it touching people I don't know and have never done anything to. I don't want it around the world rearranging other people's lives. It's just a criminal enterprise, so I'm kind of baffled why we want any of it. Oh, let, okay. let, me, be, let, let me interject here. I'm an anarchist sure, sure. as well, and, and my conception of libertarianism is anarchist. In other words, um, I think the consistent libertarian is an anarcho-libertarian, so... I would agree completely with Becky. I, I, I just don't think libertarian means minarchist. I think it means anarchist. Okay, great. And, and this brings up a very good question then. So how do we enforce property rights? Who's going to do that? Are you asking Stefan? Either one of you, sure. Uh, generally, the way you would enforce property rights is with your own gun. <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't know that this is going to be much of a problem. Let's say that we had a perfectly anarchic world. Right. The greatest aggressor against property rights is government. So if we get rid of that institution, we're going to have very, very little aggression against our property. Will there be any? Yeah, every once in a while you're going to have some lazy scum that doesn't want to earn his own way, and since he can't go into politics, if we've gotten rid of government, he'll be preying on us. In that case, you take your gun and you fight him off. 
um, we tend to forget that there hasn't always been a totalitarian government regulating absolutely everything we do. Uh, this worked very nicely in a lot of areas of the world, uh, including the American West and, and other parts of America in the 18th century. Um, it's worked in other areas as well before there was a state-defined police force to chase criminals down. People in England uh, did it themselves. Um, you know, the state came in with a police force primarily to make money off victims of crimes. So, yeah, sure. It, I, I always find it uh, interesting how some of the most prosperous periods of, of our country's history uh, were, you know, back in the beginning. And absolutely. And through the 17th and 18th century when the government, you know, was much, much smaller. There's yeah. always a direct correlation between size of government and prosperity of people. And sure. any time that, uh, you know, the United States actually has fooled that for a while. And we have seen amazing prosperity throughout the 20th century, even as the government grew to gargantuan levels. That's coming to an end. Um, and I think it's always a tribute to the strength of the market. It, it doesn't really say much about government. It's just, you know, the desire to be prosperous, the desire to buy and sell is a deeply embedded part of human nature. And it will triumph, just like the desire to speak your mind and believe what you want to believe will always triumph. You can have the most totalitarian government in the world. Those impulses don't die. They just go underground. And underground sometimes is where the strongest streams flow. Sure, I, I, sure. Becky, um, and I think in an, uh, you know, if we ever had an anarchist society, you're only going to achieve it after – some transition period where basically the human uh, humans become more and more at least economically literate, let's say. So basically, the average quality of human the human mentality was going to rise. If you're if you've achieved an anarchist society, most people respect property rights to a very high principal degree. So Becky's right. We anarcho libertarians oppose aggression in all its forms, state aggression and also private crime. And if the state's removed, then you only have private crime left. And you know, in a free society, it would be so prosperous. It would be at magnitudes of order more prosperous than we have now. There would almost be no need for crime. It would be so easy to make money, and there probably would be so much charity and free services for people that just were too lazy to do anything productive. There would be almost no point to crime, and the little crime that did exist would be easily fought off by the vast majority of people. Now, I do believe there would be um, also a role for the division of labor in the sense that, yes, you would have your own guns and your own locks on your houses, but certainly there would be a role for organized private defense services and justice services as well. Stefan, you're absolutely correct, and that's borne out by early American history. Um, there was virtually no crime whatsoever in the colonies and um, in the early republic, aside from what the government chose to call crime. For instance, in fact, that's mostly what was filling the jails, people who smuggled, uh, people who didn't attend church on Sundays, people who got drunk, that sort of thing. But true crime where somebody was stealing from somebody else or murdering, very, very rare. And one of the reasons for that, again, is because there was a very limited government and because um, there was just such widespread prosperity. It's a new country. There's an awful lot of labor that needs to be done. So even criminals in England, you know, people who had been pit pockets or whatever and who were transported as their punishment to the colonies would be hired and pretty much reformed. And, and uh, you know, just it's a fascinating commentary on what happens when you don't have much government. Well, you know, yeah. even in today's society, we have criminals are, 
are marginalized, uh, even though we sort of know that a lot of criminals aren't criminals. Um, they're not real criminals. They're, they're political you know, prisoners. They've been tarred by the state. So in a, in a free society, anyone that's a real criminal would even be more marginalized because they'd be a real criminal. There would be no doubt that they're criminals, and everyone there'd be such a prevailing ethos of private property and cooperation that anyone who who was basically a criminal would be an outlaw, and they would be totally marginalized from society. So they'd be easy to spot, easy to keep tabs on, and easy to uh, to to uh, prevent them from creating any mass havoc. Yes. Okay. So so Becky, you know, I agree with you 100%. We're talking about personal, you know, uh, individual utility, right? Individual well-being in a society. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's always going to come through, no matter. You know, we we succeed as as a country and as an economy despite the government, not because yes, of it. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So so my question is, the the society that we're discussing here right now, if this really is the most prosperous, how come we don't have it? I'm not sure I'm following your question. Tell me again. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, you know, if, if, if there really was a, uh, this uh, completely anarchist society, completely free of any sort of uh, tyrannical government, um, and, and if this really would be the most prosperous model, how come we don't see more of it in the world? Oh, okay, you're saying why don't people want it enough to make it a reality? Is well, that yeah, your question? Yeah, yeah, either that or or realize, yeah, yeah. I guess that would be a good way to put it. Why don't they want it enough? If they're, if if really the the you know the strongest human, you know, the very strong uh, aspect of our human nature is prosperity and, and personal utility. And this you know society that we're talking about, this anarchist society, would give us that greatest level of of personal welfare and utility. How come we don't see more of it? Well, I think there are two problems working against it. The first is just the absolute indoctrination of American society. From the time a child is born, the state is trying to get its hands on him. And it finally succeeds. If it doesn't get him for preschool, it succeeds at the age of five when he goes into kindergarten. And even private schools, unless you can find, and I've never heard of one that exists, an anarchic private school, um, even there they're going to get indoctrinated. My church has just begun sponsoring a school, and I am appalled at the stuff I see on the walls. Okay, I walked in one day, and there's a whole big graphic. This is a grade school, you know, uh, kids four, five, six years old. There's Uh a graphic on the wall about how the cops are our friends. And I'm standing there looking at that and trying to compute it and thinking, okay, let's remember that cops under the Roman Empire crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, why are we telling kids these guys are our friends? They are not. They steal for a living. They kill people for a living. Why is a Christian church putting out this kind of propaganda? But I don't mean to pick on my church necessarily. I'm sure that goes on in all private schools. I'm just trying to make the point that no matter where you go, because the state also controls private education, because private schools have to have a certain minimum you know, uh, uh, guidelines that they meet from the state, you're going to find this everywhere. So kids from the time they can remember are told that the state is our friend. Um, most people are not, sad to say, intelligent enough to see through that or there are other factors working against them when they try to see through it. Occasionally somebody does, and occasionally um, somebody has had so many bad experiences they outweigh the good. That can be one way that you wake up to all this propaganda, or you may just read a lot. You may say, wait a minute, you know, what you're telling me does not jive with reality. 
So I think that's your first problem. You've got to surmount all the indoctrination from schools, from television, from radio, from advertising, from talking on, to just other to people. On, just a note on that, Vicki. I want to I want to point out. We just came back. I came back from spring break with my kids, and the airlines. Uh, when we were on board the plane, they're involved at this now, saying, "Let's give a big round of applause to those that serve and die, the heroes of our military." There you go. There you then go. It, it crops up everywhere. You, you can't get away from it. I was so disappointed at SeaWorld before the Shamu show, of all things, mm-hmm. they did the same thing. They asked all the military people in the audience to stand up, and everybody applaud them for you know, serving there up and go. protecting. And, and I was, to be honest with you, you know, I fly with Delta a lot. I can overlook that. You know, I'm, I'm pleased with their service. But I, I was really, really shocked to see that going on at SeaWorld, of all places. Well, I wouldn't be because, remember, these corporations are all in bed with the government. Well, of so course. They, okay. they rub each other's backs, and, and they're all happy as clams. So sure. you're working against this propaganda that's coming from all quarters. There is another aspect of human nature, and I think a lot of people are born with this, and some people aren't. And the people that aren't tend to be the anarchists and libertarians, and that is the desire to tell other people what to do. I'm constantly amazed <laughs> at the politicians. It's like... What are you worried about my life? You're on your third marriage. You've got 14 illegitimate kids. You've had your hand in the till. You are facing um, ethics charges from some congressional uh, committee. Here I am just minding my own business. I don't really care what you're doing in your life. And it's such a shambles. You have time to worry about what I'm doing in my life. I also have a friend who visited a barber, and the barber told him that. And my friend who's a a libertarian was saying to the barber, here's what I think, and here's how I'd like to see the world run. The guy just looked at him. Now, remember, a barber, an immigrant, in fact, from Russia, who looked at my friend and said, that'll never work because there's too many people want to tell everybody else what to do. Isn't that amazing that the government actually believes that they can be our moral compass? Oh, <laughs> I always please. find that to be. <laughs> please, the day I have to take a moral compass from murderers and thieves is the day I'll just uh, lie down and die. That's right. That's you know, right. On, on a little tangent here, I I, uh, I agree with you, Becky. Um, it's it's everywhere. But even if you somehow keep your kids away from TV and out of out of the private and public schools, I mean, you still have your job cut out for you as a parent too sort of counter-indoctrinate them all the time or to let them be aware of what's coming out there. And, and I, I will say that I've been pleasantly – my kid is at a private Montessori school, and I will say I've been pleasantly surprised at the lack of a lot of that rah-rah pro-state stuff, maybe because of their international influence and their focus on peace. Good. Uh, of course, you get a little bit of the environmentalism and stuff like that, but um, I haven't seen any of the, uh, the pro-state worship like we get at the, uh, at the, at the other schools. It, it, it's funny. My my kids now. My my oldest. She's in fifth grade, and she's she's coming home. You know, they're already studying the the Great Depression and FDR and the and the New Deal. And she's coming home telling me, you know, all the great things that happened. And I just kind of calmly sit her down, you know, and <laughs> and you know, explain to her the other side of the economic issues. Dad's an economist, you know, so here are the economic implications of that. And you know, uh, make sure she has both sides of the story before she makes any decisions, you know. You know, you know uh, interestingly, I had lunch a couple of days ago with a guy here in Houston who's a teacher at the uh, Montessori High School here in Houston called School of the Woods, and he and two other teachers there are Austrian anarchists or Austrian libertarians, and they brought about nine of their students to the uh, Mises Circle here in Houston uh, a couple of months ago, and they're uh-huh. <laughs> they are really building something there. That's oh, terrific. Right on, right on. So, so let me ask you guys this question then. Um, so you guys believe that we could actually uh, get along with no sort of court system or government intervention whatsoever. So, so what happens with, 
with uh, the sorts of externalities like pollution. Let's say that uh, I, I live along a river. I, I rely, the river, you know, the land belongs to me. The river runs through my part of the land. I rely on that as my water source. And some guy 50 miles upstream is dumping his waste into the river. Who's going to sort that out? Well, you know, actually, that's all come about because of government. There used to be concepts in the law that said uh, you can't pollute something for just the reason you said, because there are people downstream. In the 19th century, the U.S. government got rid of a lot of that common law because it was stopping corporations that were just beginning from being able to produce and be prosperous. And, of course, we all know that what's good for General Motors is good for America. And that was very much the government's attitude in the 19th century. So they got rid of a lot of, and there's a term if I can think of it, and I cannot, sorry. Uh, They got rid of a lot of this law that basically said if you pollute a stream, you have to make whole the people who live downstream. Right. So government is always the source of all our trouble. I mean, whatever solution government proposes, it's because it's caused the problem in the first place. Its solution never does make us whole. Um, You know, the solution is worse than the problem itself because in addition to not making us whole, we have to pay an arm and a leg for it. Um, And let me go back to something else you said, Don, about... um, Uh, we would get rid of courts. Let me say that uh, I'm not sure that we would, and this is not a question I have studied in depth. There are anarchists who have really examined this, and I'm not one of them, so Mm -hmm. I can't give the definitive answer. But much more, anarchy is a way to replace the compulsion of government with voluntary association. So there, even under an anarchist society, even in an anarchist society, there may be courts. Now, they would probably be one, or they would be ones that are, you know, voluntarily upheld and that sort of thing. And again, I'm not an expert on how they would function. There are other people that have looked into this, but uh, it's just a good thing to keep in mind that, um, especially when you're talking to friends who may be scared at the independence and the self-reliance that anarchy requires, um, you know, you say, well, we would replace government institutions with ones that reco- that you give your voluntary allegiance to. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I was going to say, you know, I, I think there would be courts. Of course, there would be laws, and there there would even be government. In the depending on how you use the word government, some anarchist anarchist types try to distinguish between government and state. And they sort of play a semantic game when they do that, and that's fine with me if they want to define government as sort of the, the, the institutions in society that provide for justice and law, then that's not necessarily unlibertarian. If it's a statist government, then it's unlibertarian. If it's a private set of institutions, that's fine. And, of course, there would be room for division of labor. And, you know, there's been a lot of research by libertarians on on what mechanisms are likely to arise in a free society, and there would probably be insurance companies and you know regional agreements, private defense agencies, and uh, you know you have to realize that the the idea of libertarianism is people that are somewhat economically uh, economically literate and predisposed to peace, voluntary cooperation, and prosperity among each other, and so these types of people will have a predisposition to have dispute resolution when there's a dispute because disputes are inevitable among human affairs. There will be a predisposition to cooperate and try to find a fair solution when there's a a genuine dispute. And there will be thus a predisposition to resort to neutral third parties to help decide the dispute, which will eventually in a formalized way become courts and and legal precedents and things like that, the common law like like Becky mentioned. And 
when you have a dispute between property owners, and all disputes are essentially about property, right. the question is who's the property owner and whose rights are violated. And if we go back to locking in principles, then, then it's a question of application. Sometimes it's difficult. But Becky's right. There was a developed common law in England about uh, water rights and river rights and things like this, and the state has largely supplanted all this with legislated or, or artificial law. Right, right. That's interesting. And to, for me, one of the big issues, you know, and you've mentioned a couple of times, Stefan, is the predisposition to peace. Um, you know, the, 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 the war in Afghanistan, or the war, it's not even a war, is it? It's, it's some sort of military action. Uh, Attack uh, on innocent people, but go ahead. Yeah, well, yeah, no, no, you're absolutely right, and that's where I was going with this. Um, to, to some degree, I, 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 I could almost justify in my mind uh, Afghanistan. I mean, we had 9-11. Um, it was clear that al-Qaeda was responsible, um, and you know, guys like Ron Paul and some others thought that we were going to Afghanistan to go after al-Qaeda. And then we end up setting up shop, occupying it, killing innocent Afghanis, setting up our own puppet government, and typical U.S. Uh, shenanigans. Iraq, however, uh, you know, pretty much pick your definition of terrorism. We, we, we committed terrorism against the people of Iraq, and we continue to, to commit it every single day. And this is this is a, a, a big issue with me, and uh, it's it's really mind-boggling to me how anybody can actually look at this. You know, I, I'm on Facebook, of course, as everybody is nowadays, and I talk with my friends, and I started a group, End the War in Iraq, uh, on Facebook. And, you know, I still get people saying, you know, all the statistics coming out of Iraq are so unimpressive, you know, and, 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 and this and that. And, uh, you know, I, I, I say, uh, but how, how, could you, how do you possibly, you know, even just from a human standpoint, forget libertarian, Republican, Democrat, whatever, from a human standpoint, you know, how, how do you justify invading a, a sovereign nation that had no Navy, it had been destroyed in the first Gulf War, had no Air Force, had a pathetic army, and just going in and, and literally invading it, overthrowing the government, putting in our own government, and then the way our government throws around the world, you know, throws around the word uh, terrorism and terrorists, and we have to protect our country from them. Who's going to protect the world from us? My <laughs> well, Don, didn't you read that clause in the Constitution that allows the uh, U.S. government to regime change? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, and, I would say that it goes back to what you were talking about earlier, the role of ideology. Basically, the people do not see our state as really evil and as their enemy. They basically have accepted the state's propaganda. You know, I, I used to believe the state was good at only one thing, and that's breaking things and killing people, right. and, you know, ruining ruining business and ruining the economy. But they're also good at propaganda. I'm not sure why they're good at propaganda. They are very good at propaganda. So people cooperate with it, but they're good at propaganda. And basically it's, it's, an, it's basically an illusion or, or, or a mass delusion or a mistake in believing the state is legitimate. And they believe this, I think, because they see – they do recognize the necessity for – the basic institutional services the state claims to provide, you know, justice and policing and things like that. And they have bought the idea of public goods or the idea that these things have to be provided by the state or we won't have them at all. So they sort of take the bad with the good because they think it's impossible otherwise. Um, you know, but even, even your comment, Don, about Afghanistan, I mean, there are just so many things wrong with the idea that it could even possibly be justified. You mentioned Iraq right after that. Well, Iraq, of course, was a consequence of the war in Afghanistan. We would have had the war in Iraq without Afghanistan. So you, even if Afghanistan would have been justified, you can't trust this government to do just Afghanistan. You know, They're going to take this power, and it's going to metastasize and expand, and they're going to abuse it. 
Um, and furthermore, I mean, so what's the purpose of the war in Afghanistan? There's only two purposes I can think of. One is to combat terrorism and to make it a, a further attack less likely on the country, which of course has not been achieved. We just stirred them up even worse. And the other is some kind of vengeance, which is sort of a moral thing. Let's, let's have our government go kill the bad guys. Well, if you see our state as evil, then you would be much less enthusiastic about trusting this evil big criminal empire which is actually our biggest enemy. The American government is the biggest enemy to the American people. I mean, you know, the terrorists who flew into the towers, I agree, they were evil people. and they, they Everybody, there's no doubt about that. They committed a crime. I won't, say that, I won't say that we weren't responsible for stirring all this up, but they were, they were evil people, and they killed 3,000 people. But the federal government takes you know, one-third to one-half of everyone's incomes every year on an ongoing basis without stop. And jail people for you know for uh, for uh, uh, victimless crimes. It is a, an ongoing rampaging victim, and the idea of resorting to this criminal parasitical agency to wreak vengeance on our enemies while killing innocent people is utterly insane. Yeah, yeah, and and people have been conditioned, like Becky was saying, they've been conditioned, you know, not not to uh, put the shoe on the other foot and look at the the same claims that our government's making about these other countries like Afghanistan and Iraq to make that same comparison to our government. Yeah. They, they, they've just been conditioned to, that, to have that, that tunnel vision, that blind. They never get both sides of the story, right? They're just, the America is good and righteous, and whatever, everything we do is, actually improves the welfare of the world as a whole, and you know, everybody who disagrees with us is a terrorist. The right. man. There's a fascinating anecdote from the American Revolution that bears directly on this, and the point that I'd like to make is that you cannot give liberty to people. So I know this is a constant neocon claim that we're going around the world and giving people liberty, but you can't do that. And in the American Revolution, um, there was a point early on where the 13 United States or colonies at that point wanted Canada in on our side. And of course, Canada at that point was largely French Catholic, and you know the Americans could make the argument to them, well, you know, the British government is anti-Catholic; it's going, it's oppressing you. Uh, You should be free. Come join our revolution. It could have been disguised as we're going to send an army up there to free you from the British Empire, just like we're trying to free ourselves. Right. And Washington did, in fact, send Benedict Arnold and Richard Montgomery north with, it was a two-pronged um, invitation to the Canadians to join us. And, you know, Washington was very clear in his words, we are not invading them. You are to go and tell them, we have this revolution going on, we would like you to join us if you want to. Now, it did degenerate from there into a lot of fighting, and uh, since the the two armies were, in fact, armies, the Canadian uh, people were very easily swayed by the Redcoats into seeing it as an invasion. But again, the principle is you can't give liberty people. They have to love it so much they're willing to fight for it. The French Canadians were not. Now, they, you know, they were overawed by the British Redcoats, uh, but they were not willing to come out and help the Americans throw off those Canadian Redcoats so that they could go down and fight with them in the colonies against the rest of the British Army. Right. And likewise, when we go over and invade Iraq or we <clears throat> invade Afghanistan, we can say all we want to that we're bringing them liberty. Such a thing just doesn't happen. But no, you you're, you're – go, go, sorry, your head down. No, I was going to say, yeah, you're, you're born free. You're born with the liberty. All the government can do is take it away from you, and then you have to fight to, to, 
You uh, yourself have to fight. Yeah. That's right. That's right. You can't wait for somebody else. Now, I'm not talking about a situation. I don't know if this has ever even existed in world history. It's probably just hypothetical. But say that you know you had a band of a couple hundred people who were being held captive by three thousand, and they really wanted to be free. Okay. Well, yeah. At that point, if you have a superior force that comes in, but that's not what happens. It's what you said. We go over and we just invade a sovereign nation and decide that they should have a kind of government we dictate to. And let's remember, we're not talking about giving them liberty. We're talking about giving them another government. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's such a contradiction in terms, and yet how many Americans swallow this? How many Americans are sitting out there saying, you know, we did a good thing there. We deposed Saddam Hussein. We gave those Iraqis freedom. It's like, no, you didn't. <laughs> yeah. Go, go ahead. One of your comments reminded me of, uh, uh, and I agree with that, um, but I do think that just as becoming an anarchist requires sort of a radical re-perspective or rethinking on the nature of the state, I think that I'm I think that libertarians need to get over this American Revolution worship. I mean, I don't think the American Revolutionary War was any more libertarian than the war in Iraq. Um, maybe some of the motivations, but there was slavery, uh, there was conscription, there was shooting of deserters, there was favoritism to the landed ownership. It's, it resulted in the constitutional coup of 1789 soon after the soon after that, which was nothing but a centralizing power grab by the central state, which worked. So I I think that. Uh, I think that you know we we libertarians need to realize the Amer- the early American uh, state, even if you ignore slavery, which is a huge thing to ignore, was not was not anarchist, was not libertarian, was not minarchist, was not even classical liberal, really. Well, I would have to disagree entirely with that. I'm sorry. Yeah, Um, Becky. Becky's an expert, uh, (laughs) uh, Revolutionary War historian, right, Becky? Yeah. I uh, basically there are several strains. I mean, the the American Revolutionary Generation. There were about three million Americans alive at that point, Mm -hmm. and they were not a united front. There were as many strains in them as there are in us today. Mm -hmm. There were some, as Stefan is alleging, that were very statist, actually, and they were known as radical. uh, radicals, they, their headquarters was primarily in Pennsylvania, but some of their ideas spread throughout the country, and they're still alive today, the, those ideas. Basically, they were communists. Um, so there was that, but that was never a predominant force. It was in, in Philadelphia and in Pennsylvania, and then because Pennsylvania is one of the, the most influential member of the Continental Congress, it did penetrate Congress. Um, but there were also absolute anarchists. Sam Adams, pretty anarchic. You read him, you read Tom Paine. From their own lips, government is the is an evil. I mean, you don't get much more anarchic than that. Tom Paine has some pretty socialist things he said too. Yes, I mean, he did towards the end of his life. But no, uh, but it's not just uh, yeah. I agree. Some of the people were anarchistic, but the this was a, this was a government, a state, and I don't see how an anarchist can be. Well, that. it was a government loosely held uh, <clears throat> under the Articles of Confederation, and you're absolutely right about the coup that put the Constitution in place. But But I I would very heavily dispute that the American Revolution was as bad as the war in Iraq, and I would heavily, heavily dispute that it was not anarchic. There were definitely anarchic strains throughout it. As as an economist, I have to believe, considering that so many of our our founding fathers were wealthy businessmen to begin with, um, I don't know, large landowners, correct me if I'm wrong. uh, No, that's right. Yeah, and so, uh, I mean, they weren't stupid. They saw the economic benefits to independence. Oh, and they gave off favors to their friends. I mean, there was, I mean, the, I, I just think it was, look, it was better in some ways than what we have now, in a lot of ways. But it was no, it was no libertarian paradise. And, and, you know, I sometimes think that we would have been better off to stay part of the British Empire. Slavery may have been uh, wiped out peacefully without legislation. 
uh, who knows what history would have been. There would maybe not been a civil war, not a World War One, not a World War Two, you know, not a Cold War, not the Holocaust. Uh, okay. Yeah, and today uh, both Canada and England are five to six years ahead of us in their totalitarianism. So yeah, I'm actually pretty glad we separated. Yeah, but it is, you know, it's arguable, and I'm not a historical expert, but I've, I've read others who conclude with reasonable arguments that, uh, you know, I mean, if not for America's intervention in World War One, then World War Two wouldn't have happened, right? And the monarchies wouldn't have collapsed across Europe, and they wouldn't have become as socialist as they did. In other words, this all could have been the result of America's influence in World War One. Well, I don't know that we can blame the founders for the fact that progressivism wreaked havoc in the late 19th century. I mean, no, I agree. They, when, they, you, when you start a state, the results are unpredictable. And, you know, if I understand, like, a Shays' Rebellion, so, I mean, some of these guys were, were executed days right before, right after the uh, the declaration was signed. So, I, you know, I guess they were really glad to see that happen right before they were executed for some non-crime. Yeah, I, I, was, I was surprised, to be honest with you, to learn that Washington executed uh, some of his conscripts who, uh, I guess, deserted. Of course, these guys are criminals. In my, from the anarchist perspective, they are criminals. They, they are murderers and they're criminals. They're conscripting slaves, for God's sake, to fight in the war to free, you know, to, 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 for the benefit of the, of the, of the, landed, uh, the landed white men. Uh, are you sure that Washington executed deserters? I have never read that anywhere. Yeah, have you have you read that stuff? And I, I just yeah. recently came not, across not, not that. Not with his own gun. I mean, he ordered it done. That's I've right. I've never that's read right. that anywhere. Yeah, uh, deserters could be whipped. Um, often, what happened was you were drummed out of the army after you finished out your sentence and and that or your, your term, whatever sentence. Um, yeah, from, you could be drummed out I've, of the army, which was extremely disgraceful and you know shame actually. Um, isn't it interesting that shame was one of the biggest punishments in the colonies and early republic, and it is completely lost to us now with the rise of the state and the rise of state law? Um, you know, right. I mean, okay. look, my only point here is that worshiping the Constitution like we do, especially the Constitution, the Declaration is, is more controversial, I agree with you, um, in the sense of being a good libertarian uh, document, but – we worship the our libertarians routinely say, "Oh, we need to return to the Constitution, blah blah blah," and this plays into the state's hand. I mean, it basically gives legitimacy to the state, even if they abided by the Constitution, which is impossible. We would still have a criminal state. Oh yeah, any government is criminal by its nature because it steals money. That's and right. It not to mention all the murder, but even if it does nothing <laughs> else except tax, and any government has to tax, it's stealing money. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 just pure. It's extortion, pure and simple. And it's funny when I talk to folks and I tell them that it's extortion, they're like, "No, it's not." And so then I ask them, "Well, then, if the government told you tomorrow that you didn't have to pay any taxes anymore, would you still pay them?" Okay. And it's like, "No, of course you pay them because you're afraid of you know financial penalty or, or criminal penalty." So, and isn't yeah. that interesting? I have been told by mainstream newspaper editors, you know, I've submitted op-eds, and they will not allow me to call taxation extortion. So I back Whoa. you up on that one. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It, and it's, it's so, funny it so how clearly you, is, isn't it? You put the state's crimes into plain English, and people are horrified. How can you call it that? That's not what it is. It's like, yeah, actually, that is. The classic definition of extortion is taking money from somebody by force. So yeah, well, you tell me how that, that is isn't taxation. That, yeah, it's supposed to be illegal, uh, illegal yeah. taking of, of people by force. And so the government says, you know, well, it's legal if we do it. So it's not extortion, right? Right, so, right. Yeah. Hey, listen, guys, we've got about five minutes left. So to wrap this up, I want to know from each of you, what do we do next? <laughs> <laughs> What's the solution here? Uh, I mean, we already mentioned we don't want to replace one government with another. No. Right? So, right. so 
what's what's the solution? What what if you guys were were uh, going to lay out a roadmap? What what do we do? I would try to convince everybody I know of how totally inept and totally immoral and evil and wicked government is. And any government, no matter how totalitarian, does not exist once most people no longer give it credence. If we could simply convince our friends and family to turn their back on government, don't believe it, don't believe a word any politician says, don't obey it any more than you have to, don't honor it, don't pledge allegiance to it, do nothing, laugh at it, ignore it as much as you can, government would disappear overnight. I, you know, and, and I, I couldn't agree with you more. I agree with that, too. Um, uh, and and with your question sort of presupposes an activist sort of mentality. In other words, what do we do? And I think there's sort of two answers to the question, what do you do? Number one is your personal. I mean, you, you may not want to be an activist. You may want to just decide how to deal with this huge criminal enterprise known as a state, which I believe will be here when I die and when my kids die. So it's a fact of life. Now, if I want to get some kind of personal gratification out of being part of the movement for freedom, that's a separate avocation or hobby or, or something I do. But I think so there's two answers. One, in your private life, treat the state, treat the state as a technical problem. You know, treat it like you lived in a world where there were terrible storms or pestilence or life was just harder because of these challenges, and you had to figure out how to get around these challenges. The state is like that. The state is a big challenge. And there are different ways to deal with it. You can keep a low profile. You can move somewhere else better. You can earn money off the books. You can become very wealthy so that you're not touched by the local cops. I mean there's different things you can try to do in your personal life. Um, if you want to be an activist or part of the movement, then I think the only solution in the long run is economic literacy. That really is the only solution because we can't change people's nature. Either, the, either they're basically good or they're not in the sense that they would prefer well-being, you know, uh, good things for their fellow man. And I think most people do. They just don't understand the economic implications of the ideas they put out. So I think economic literacy is the only thing, and I think it's a dynamic and a, it's a long battle. It will never be won completely, and we can only hope to try to uh, gradually increase economic literacy, which is why I think um, the Mises Institute and related free market organizations are probably the, 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 the most important organizations in the world in terms of libertarian, uh, the spread of libertarian ideas. Right, so obviously education, number one. Uh, yes. Uh, regard. And, and, and I also think, and this is uh, uh, Becky's alley, is, is not just economic education, but historical education. I mean, you know, you, we, we have that saying, you know, you need to remember history so you don't repeat it. Yeah. And, and we, we have so much historical evidence, you know, for the sorts of things that our government's currently doing that other governments have done. I mean, how many, how many examples of, of failure do we need of socialist or, or, you know, central planning economies, whether you call it socialist or communist or, or, or whatever, do we need to, you know, before people finally say, look, it doesn't work, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I, I think we need to be historians as well. We, you know, we have to take stock, of, and not just American history, but, but world history, world political and economic history. Communism has cursed the world for millennia. I mean, there were communists in Rome <laughs> and before the empire, too. Um, there were two brothers known as the, the Gracchi, and they basically advocated communistic measures in ancient Rome. And it was awful. And that is directly where the bread and circuses that eventually brought the Roman Empire to its knees. That's where they originated. So you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, another big 
uh, vote of confidence in history is the fact that the founders were all very, very aware of classical history, and they did not want to repeat the mistakes that had been made in Greece and Rome here. Um, so we can learn an awful lot from people who've gone before us and who have lived through the horrors our government is currently perpetrating. Right. Well, I, I tell you guys, we could talk all day, and uh, I need to make this show longer because 45 minutes never seems to be enough. But uh, I want to thank you guys for coming on today. Uh, everybody, we've been talking with uh, Becky Akers and Stefan Kinsella uh, about what uh, a libertarian is and what libertarianism and anarcho-libertarianism uh, is. And uh, thanks, you guys, so much. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Thank Bye-bye. you. Okay, have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, guys. Uh, well, that's the, the show for this week. Uh, it'll be, of course, uh, archived and available online on blogtalkradio.com forward slash chaos uh, for, uh, for everyone to, to listen to. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Uh, tune in next week again, Saturday at noon.